As one of America's largest financial services companies, Nationwide makes simplicity a priority so financial professionals can help their clients achieve their retirement goals. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio. Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keene, along with Jonathan Farrell and Lisa Abramowitz. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg Terminal. Danny Blanchard joins us right now. Danny, it's fantastic yeah. to catch up, and I think we should start there. At the heart of these decisions, what do these decisions mean for everyday Brits, everyday Americans, when City are basically saying millions are going to end up unemployed? And the question I've asked, and I think you're perfectly positioned to try and answer it, is higher unemployment a price worth paying to try and get no. inflation down? No, well, we have a lot of evidence. I mean, the central bankers forever have said how important inflation is, and they just kind of guessed it. So there's a huge body of literature that I've contributed to, and we look at What's the, what's the impact on the country's well-being, if you like, on the wealth of nations, of a one percentage point rise in unemployment compared to a one percentage point rise in inflation? And the answer is it's absolutely clear, between five and ten times worse. So a new paper says that the rise in unemployment that they're going to bring about is ten times worse than the problem they're trying to solve. And, and you started this thing out. We, I've been talking a lot about the woman on the Mile End Road omnibus. And what I mean by that is... So, so the Bank of England sits in the city of London. One mile away is the Mile End Road. It's called the Mile End Road because it's a mile from the city. And it's where the two worlds collide. And the question is, what's going on that's going to help the bankers and the city folks that we talk to and the woman riding the bus on the Mile End Road? Right. And the answer, it seems to me, is that, is that we're, we're seeing disaster coming. We're seeing rises in interest rates in the UK when... The Bank of England's agents today talk about slowing demand, slowing output. Um, the Bank of England forecasts before the rate rise that there's a high probability of deflation and that output is going right. to fall over the next three years. So what are they trying to do for a problem that's not about demand-driven inflation? And the other thing, John and, and um, Tom, I think we really should think about, in a sense, you guys talk about this all the time, but there's so little dissent the story at the ECB, the story at the Bank of England, the story at the Fed. We've got to do things about inflation. We've got to raise rates. Okay. Potentially, this is going to crash the economies, Prof and it'll all be much worse. Right. Professor Blanchflower, I stood in the bottom of our building here in New York with Secretary of Treasury Tim Geithner in the right. heart of the financial crisis, and Geithner brilliantly laid out that they needed to extend the x-axis and use right. time to heal the wounds. Are these central banks that are panicking because they refuse to send uh, to extend time to extend the x-axis to in exactly. to diffuse inflationary impulse? Well, that's absolutely right, Tom. I mean, the, the thing that strikes me as very interesting is these central bankers seem to want to respond to every piece of minutiae that comes in every day. Their job is to focus on the forecast horizon, what inflation is going to be, let's say, in two years' time. But if that causes all kinds of problems, there's no reason why you shouldn't say, OK, let's let inflation come back to target in three years or four years. I mean, that's absolutely allowed. And the sensible thing probably to do is to see if this temporary shock dissipates. So you could sit there and say a sensible path 
would be to sit and wait and watch. But again, where's the dissenting voices? They're all saying the same thing based on zero data. They have no precedent to this. And the danger is that uh, the soft landings are not going to come. I mean, the forecast yesterday from the Fed said output's going to be fine. Unemployment's going to rise just a little bit and raising rates to four and a half percent. No worry. It'll slowly bring inflation down. And that's for Gaga land. That's not going to happen. Danny, is there, are there any circumstances under which you would argue for raising rates? Well, of course, obviously. I mean, the re- absolutely. So but, what, so what, what are the scenarios that would cause well, you to say it is important I mean, in to a sense, that's a stupid question. That's a stupid question in a way. I mean, what we've seen since 2008 is the mother of all shocks. We saw the mother of all shocks, negative shock to output in 2007, eight, which you had to counter. If you hadn't accounted it, Ben Bernanke said unemployment would have been 25%, so I'd buy that. So now what we have are giant shocks, I mean, a, a giant shock from the COVID and from the war. We don't know how it's going to recover. So why would I want to punch the labor market and punch demand before I really know what's coming? I mean, it's as if they know what's coming because they clearly don't. So under these circumstances, supply-driven shock that essentially is going to drop out, my guess in the United States and in the UK, We'll see very low uh, inflation by June as those big numbers, one-off big numbers that we saw dropped out. So I would have not been voting for rate rises because of the large negative shock. And the debate over the last decade is about the scale of that negative shock. Danny, Danny, it may be a stupid question, and yet some people might be wondering that because they're taking a look at CPI where it is and saying, why wouldn't you uh, want to raise oh, rates? So and then, I mean, I'm just saying this. Why you wouldn't. What, so, from his, your perspective, you from yeah, your perspective, you what data point would you be watching to prove what? your point every week? Okay, so let's just go with the claims that the Fed has made and the claim that I make. So what you got was a couple of once-off events, which are basically driving the base effects. You've had inflation of zero and zero point one in the last two months. If you just take 2012 to 2019 and you impose those inflation shocks over the next eight months. Inflation gets to one by about June. If you go back to 2008, same date, July 2008, inflation was 5.6%. It was minus two a year later. So the question is, everything's being driven by the base effect. So I would be watching and waiting. Danny Blanchflat, thank you, sir. Nobody ever says, make it complicated. That is why Nationwide makes simplicity a priority by providing financial professionals with straightforward, client-ready resources. From clear strategies to help clients meet retirement savings and income needs, to ways to cover rising health care costs and more. Nationwide simplifies planning so more time can be spent helping clients. Nationwide is on your side. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio. Success is more than the final destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's discipline. It's teamwork. And it's the drive and passion inside of us that comes before all recognition. It's what Stiefel's been doing for over 130 years. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel's become one of the fastest growing wealth management and investment banking firms in the country. Our financial advisors go beyond traditional wealth management to provide clients with direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises and a leading middle market investment bank because success is the drive it takes to keep climbing, the passion to keep investing, the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. 
Start your journey at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. Our guest is so important on what to do with your assets, your money forward. Lisa, help me here with the data check. So much going on. Equities give me a mixed story. The the VIX went out above 30 and pulled right back into 27.68, maybe a more quiescent response. The Dow just still above 30,000, didn't get to the 29,000 level. Lisa, what do you see in bonds this morning? Well, what you're seeing is a front end that just won't quit, right? 4.11% on that two-year yield. And I think that's really important. Also, though, in the currency space, and this sort of goes to the scene that we've been talking about over the first two hours of the show. How do other central banks respond to this? The Swiss National Bank rose, raised rates by 75 basis points, officially left uh, the mm. negative yield regime, which had been an eight-year regime, and their currency is weakening the most since 2015. What is the path ahead right. in this currency war to get a stronger currency at a time when nobody wants anything other than the dollar? For those keeping score at home, let's be clear. The Swiss went one way the Japanese went another way. Maybe that's called a currency war, Lisa? I mean, and a very different one than the ones that we're used to over the very past different. That's really, really important. As Jeff, you said earlier with BNY Mellon, it's asymmetric so to say the least. We need to solve the carnage in your portfolio. Lisa Shallot with us, Chief Investment Officer, Morgan Stanley Wealth Management, and we readjust this morning. Are we rebalancing, Lisa? Are we readjusting? What are we doing amid the carnage? Well, look, our, our advice to our clients is certainly that we should be rebalancing here. You know, what we have said is this is a time for uh, active risk management. And what we mean by that uh, is taking um, a maximum level of diversification. That means diversification by sectors, diversification by technical factors, diversification, uh, you know, by region. Uh, and, and uh, you know, I know it's not popular right now right. You know, to speak about, uh, uh, you know, American investors owning uh, non-U.S. stocks given relative outperformance of the last decade. Uh, but, you know, we think that what's going on in the currency markets is material uh, and that this this divergence ultimately uh, will mean revert and, and that. Uh, there is going to be some catch up. So we're recommending, uh, you know, maximum active management, diversification right. and, and things of that nature. I really look forward to speaking to you because I want to talk about the strange word scale. And I'm going to go back to the great Peter Lynch at Fidelity, who got angry one day and he said, look, I care about your 47th stock pick, not your number one stock pick. There seems to be so little to choose from, Lisa, a la Mike Wilson. How do you get scale or diversification within U.S. equities now if you've only got so many good ideas? Well, uh, I actually, um, I might push back on that. I think that, you know, underneath the surface of, of the S&P 500 index and even the NASDAQ indices, um, you know, we're finding real opportunities. There has been carnage in this market. We know that in small and mid-cap land, there's been carnage. We know that there's a host of, uh, sectors that that have sold off aggressively, including things like home builders, uh, you know, again, contrarian, perhaps. 
uh, but where, you know, a lot of the bad news or likely news is discounted. Uh, and so we do think that there are, you know, are, are things to accumulate out there if you um, are willing to do the fundamental work. I mean, I think one of the uh, you know, one of the challenges for a lot of investors is the last 13 years have been dominated by a handful of stocks in the U.S. with a growth orientation in the tech and and, and communication sector. And people didn't have to do much work because they could just buy the index and get uh, the job done. Uh, this is going to require uh, homework uh, navigating in these markets. Um, and this is when active managers actually you know, uh, for good or for bad, earn their fees. And, um, you know, we, we think that that is the place to be. Does that mean, Lisa, that you think the headline figure for the S&P, for example, could trade sideways for years? Uh, I do. I am, uh, you know, more in that camp. I mean, I think that one of the things that has continued to surprise me uh, is the extent to which equity investors have been willing to hold the levels of forward multiples that we're holding in the face of decade high interest rates. We know mathematically and fundamentally that the movement in interest rates higher should equate to lower price earnings ratios. Um, and, you know, yes, have we pressed down a bit from where we are in January as the Fed funds has gone, you know, from zero to, uh, you know, three? Uh, yes, we have some. Uh, but, you know, you know that we're also in the camp that the current figures in terms of estimates for forward consensus earnings estimates for 2022 full year and then 2023 probably remain too high, especially if we're in this debate about, you know, recession, no recession. Um, and so while, you know, the current pricing in markets at, at 3,800 and change may suggest, you know, a sub 17 times forward multiple, uh, if you adjust those earnings down, we might be back at 17 and a half, 18 times forward. And so this market has more work to do in terms of, quote unquote, get, getting real. So who is going to be the leadership? And I ask this because it sounds like in your scenario, big tech cannot be it anymore. Correct. I, I think big tech is going to have to consolidate. And I think those valuations are going to have to come in. And I think that they're going to have uh, the come to Jesus moment, which says, yes, these are great companies. Uh, but they are no longer great stocks because everyone knows the stories and expectations are extraordinarily hot. Um, you know, the reality is that they do operate in the whole big wide world, yeah. global world. The global world is slowing. The U.S. dollar uh, is a material headwind and inflation and cost pressures uh, are realities for uh, yeah. them as well. So new leadership, you know, from where we sit um, is likely to come from different areas, areas like healthcare. Uh, areas like uh, energy right. industrials that may benefit um, from uh, some of the, the infrastructure right. and capital spending that we think is going to occur over the next couple of years. Lisa, are we at a point, and I'm thinking of Andrew Mellon in the 1930s on transactions and combinations. Are we at a point where the zombies roll up? I mean, we finally at a point where the real interest rate market which was a gift the zombies had for 17 years, whatever the number is. Is this the point where the zombies end? I, I love what you're saying, Tom, because I do think that that, that is going to be the next phase here uh, where uh, the, the cost of capital does start to pinch. Uh, I do think that those who have, uh, you know, strategic capital to deploy 
uh, you know, are going to be able to to um, go out and and acquire some capabilities. At the same time, I think some of those zombies are going to go by the wayside um, yeah. and, and uh, you know, starve from not being able to get financing. Uh, Lisa, um, yeah, got to leave it there. Lisa Shallow, thank you so much. Terrific brief there on actually what to do with your capital with Morgan Stanley Wealth Management. Is this joy, and how did we know it was an historic day of Japanese intervention, Bank of England action, to have Abby Joseph Cohen with his professor at Columbia Business School, a modest career at Goldman Sachs as well. Abby, thank you so much for joining us here uh, to keep us informed on the underlying finance and equations, the mathematics of these equity markets. Abby Joseph Cohen, suddenly the sharp ratio matters. I guess beta matters again. But outside of beta, we've got the risk-free rate, and it is returned with a vengeance. Are we revisiting the sharp ratio? Are we back to the articles you wrote for the CFA years ago? Tom, uh, wonderful question, and I'm going to respond by giving a bit of a prologue, which is that many models are broken. Uh, have been broken during this period of time because they typically respond to cyclical phenomenon. For example, your question uh, to Michael before about the Phillips curve. And the reality is that there are so many structural changes in the economy and the markets as well that a lot of those models uh, simply have not applied. Some of them are coming back in force. Uh, the Phillips curve, for example, uh, had no way in its model to reflect the fact that there was a pandemic, uh, that we have had this generational shift in labor force participation, by which I mean the baby boomers are now stepping out of the labor force. And the other thing, of course, is that we have had a four-year uh, deceleration, if you will, in terms of immigrants coming into the United States. And over the prior decade, immigrants filled 60 to 65 percent of the increase in employment in the United States. So there are a lot of things that are different within the market itself. A lot of the models haven't applied for a while. Keep in mind this weird 20 to 30 year period in which interest rates and inflation were extraordinarily low. And to your point, real rates uh, reached negative levels, um, something we had never seen before. Uh, I, for one, now I'm answering your question, uh, I'm happy to see that the Fed is now focused on making sure that real rates, real yields are in fact positive. And does the market believe them? Uh, and the reality is that we now have a flat to inverted yield curve, which suggests to me that bond investors at least are, are giving the Fed uh, credence and credibility in terms of believing that the Fed policy uh, will have um, efficacy. Abby, are you saying that stock markets are not accurately reflecting the fact that inflation would be higher and would remain higher even after this uh, cycle collapse if the Fed were not to keep rates at a much higher level than they had been? Um, another very good question. Let me just talk about what happened yesterday in response, uh, and that is the equity market didn't know what to do. Um, first it was up, then it was down, then it was up, then it was down big time. Uh, there was really erratic behavior because to your point, Lisa, uh, equity investors are really confused because there is this yin yang between inflation and higher yields versus will the economy and earnings continue to grow? And I think we're now at a point where 
given the significant rises in um, interest rates and yields across the yield curve since the beginning of the year, the equity market is now focused much less on inflation and yields than it is on earnings. And there, there's a lot of confusion. Um, investors are not sure uh, how this is going to play out um, for the rest of the year, let alone for, for 2023. Uh, we see, for example, that there are ongoing adjustments to the consensus earnings forecast. But let me point out, we are starting at record profit margins. Um, right. It's not as if prof profit margins and ROE were low. ROE for the S&P 500 is in excess of 20%. Um, you know, so if there is, in fact, ongoing profit margin squeeze, I think the impact overall is not dramatic. The impact, however, in individual sectors may be significant. Do you see the possibility of a lost decade, Abby, given the fact that we're trying to readjust and renormalize rates, renormalize some of the uh, financialization of the economy? You mean a lost decade in the profits, in GDP, yeah. in a lot of things that people harken back to the 70s about? Sure. I mean, if, if you look at the valuation of the U.S. equity market and some other markets as well at the end of 2021, they were at record high levels in terms of where we were on percentiles. Almost every valuation model was between the 95th and 99th percentile, indicating, in my view, overvaluation. Uh, unless you believe that the dream scenario of extremely low interest rates and strong profit growth would continue uninterrupted. Uh, so where are we now? Uh, the valuations are roughly at average levels. Um, S&P 500 PE, for example, is about 16 times earnings. Um, and given where we are, even with the rise in uh, interest rates, that's not a bad place to be. So when we talk about the lost decade, let's talk about two different phases. Number one, we've now had a 20% correction in share prices from record high levels and record high valuations. Can we get back that 20%? I don't think that happens over the next several right. months. Um, over the, the next few quarters, I think the economy will slow. Earnings growth will slow, uh, but I think it's possible that we could see higher equity prices. I kind of peg that along the same lines of the growth in earnings, which is probably, right. uh, why don't we call it 5 to 10% uh, over the next few months. Abby, a few years ago, you wrote an iconic paper for the CFA Institute. You mentioned an old strategist I used to talk to named Aristotle. Aristotle never saw a bond market with yield up, price down, and the losses that we've seen over the last year and a half. How do bond investors recover given this historic carnage? The damage clearly has been much more dramatic in the bond market. And in some ways, the overvaluation in bonds was much more extreme. We had central banks around the world who kept interest rates nominally extremely low levels and real yields were low in many countries. You know, two thirds of major economies, not the US, but two thirds of major economies had negative real yields. So the damage that we've seen in the bond market, um, I, I think it was expected when we look at government bonds, it's one thing. The damage in the credit markets um, is something that we've not yet seen fully rolled forward uh, because a lot of those are illiquid securities. And I think we're going to see uh, more damage ahead. But for the uh, average investor who is willing to buy, for example, an individual bond um, and now can get a 3 or 4% yield 
uh, depending upon uh, the maturity they're willing to to take on, uh, that is something that is well, one of the best opportunities in 20 years. Very good. Are you liking teaching, Abby? I mean, this is a whole different act for you. You 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 surviving Columbia? Do you throw chalk at people? I do not throw chalk because we use whiteboards. Um, so okay. if I'm going to throw anything, it's going to be a marker. Um, yeah. So I'm 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 loving it, Tom. It's it's a great right. opportunity for me to uh, be involved in the next generation. Wonderful. You look tanned and rested. Thank you so much. Abby Joseph Cohen, professor at Columbia Business School. Nobody ever says, make it complicated. That is why Nationwide makes simplicity a priority by providing financial professionals with straightforward, client-ready resources. From clear strategies to help clients meet retirement savings and income needs to ways to cover rising health care costs and more. Nationwide simplifies planning so more time can be spent helping clients. Nationwide is on your side. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio. Success is more than the final destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's discipline. It's teamwork. And it's the drive and passion inside of us that comes before all recognition. It's what Stiefel's been doing for over 130 years. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel's become one of the fastest-growing wealth management and investment banking firms in the country. Our financial advisors go beyond traditional wealth management to provide clients with direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises and a leading middle market investment bank. Because success is the drive it takes to keep climbing, the passion to keep investing, the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Start your journey at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. This is a week of, well, Lisa, traffic in midtown Manhattan. Yeah. How about that traffic that we all see with thousands descending uh, for the United Nations General Assembly uh, meetings and much more? Far more importantly, there's a migration in October to the meetings of the International Monetary Fund in Washington. Someone who knows the schedule is Sergei Nikolaychuk, Deputy Governor of the National Bank of Ukraine, and we're honored that he could join us today uh, amid a terrible, terrible war. I, I need to go, first of all, to a simple anecdote of your Kiev. You're educated in Kiev. You have seen the transformation over 20 years. How does Kiev recover back to what you knew when you were younger? How do, how do you see that happening? Actually, Kiev changed dramatically for the last uh, 20 years. Uh, before the war, it looked like a normal European city, capital of the European country. So you may uh, you, you was able to enjoy the restaurants, clubs, uh, shopping malls, and so on. Definitely change uh, uh, change was sizable since the beginning of the war. So Kiev was completely empty in March, April. Mm-hmm. So nowadays the life is uh, recovering, coming back, coming back. Yeah. But uh, right. still, you feel uh, you feel the consequences of the war on a on each step. Gorgieva of the International Monetary Fund has a few distractions away from your war. Mm-hmm. What is your unique message to the International Monetary Fund as you cry for help? What is the distinction you say versus all the other headaches they have around the world? 
And definitely Ukraine needs the support from the International Monetary Fund. So we are very uh, grateful for the International Monetary Fund for providing us $1.4 billion uh, under the RFI at the beginning of the war. But uh, so far we need more and uh, we are ready to engage into the uh, full-fledged uh, uh, program. So, in, uh, mainly, so mainly we focus our efforts in order to launch the uh, EFF program of the large scale and uh, the authority are fully functional and ready to uh, negotiate and to discuss the policies uh, for mm-hmm. in order to uh, to launch uh, such type so, of program. Sergey, we've been talking a lot about central bank rate decisions over the past week, uh, and we've gotten a lot of them in the past 24 hours. You recently kept the rate unchanged. How do we even have monetary policy and try to keep a normal sense of monetary transmission in the face of a war, in the face of such incredible disruption in day-to-day commerce that it becomes sort of not really a main feature? Yeah, definitely. Our uh, approach to the monetary policy changed dramatically since the beginning of the war. Before the war, we uh, relied on the inflation targeting framework, very similar to many other central banks all around the world. But at the beginning of the war, we uh, uh, we moved to another setup. We started to rely heavily on the uh, stability of the exchange rate. Uh, we supported our actions on a fixed market with uh, uh, tough capital controls and uh, after some period of uh, adjustment uh, so when we keep kept the interest rate uh, stable at 10% in early June so we raised it to 25% in order to uh, help ourselves to uh, to maintain the stability of the exchange rate and uh, um, Last two, uh, our last two monetary decisions were to keep this interest rate at 25%. At the same time, so as you rightly man- mentioned, so we struggled to improve the monetary transmission, which was not perfect before the war, and definitely it's uh, uh, it is uh, even worse uh, since the beginning of the war. But so far, we see that uh, our decisions, so they they are translates uh, right. they are translate into the banking rates more or less uh, as we expected and uh, we hope that uh, tighter monetary conditions right. will help us to maintain the f- stable exchange rate. What will it take on the fiscal side? And you were talking about the IMF aid and how much you might potentially need. How much would you need and how long would it take overall to rebuild the economy in a way where you could go back to something more akin to normalcy? Okay, so frankly speaking, the losses from the war are tremendous so that uh, uh, relates both to the current situation when we have a huge uh, budget gap which we have uh, to help to finance uh, from the central bank uh, side and actually this year we already provided uh, uh, more than 10 billion dollars to 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 the to the government in order to support the essential needs uh, financing the essential needs and at the same time uh, at the same time uh, uh, that put a sizable pressure on the fixed market. Yeah. You are, you, we're running out of time here, Governor, and mm-hmm. so I've got to keep this short and abrupt, and I'm being rude in, mm-hmm. in doing that. Ukraine has had a courageous two weeks. The news flow has been extraordinarily good in the military front. What do you need from the allies right now? What do you need from Mr. Biden and the West right now? 
Definitely, we need the continuation of the support, both on military front and also uh, and also continuation of financial aid. So we uh, prove uh, to the whole world that we have uh, we, we may uh, uh, we may we may win, and uh, we hope that with the continuation of the support from the democratic world, we will achieve the victory yeah. as, as as soon as possible. Thank you so much for joining us at Bloomberg today, Sergei Nikolaychuk of the National Bank of Ukraine here among this week of disunited uh, nations. Really an extraordinary set of meetings, Lisa. I'm going to call it post-pandemic. This is the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Thanks for listening. Join us live weekdays from 7 to 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio and on Bloomberg Television each day from 6 to 9 a.m. for insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. And subscribe to the Surveillance Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on The Terminal. I'm Tom Keen, and this is Bloomberg. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.